0: Women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. You've got to be at the table. Your voice does matter. She roars! Hey, let me hear you roar one more time. Hello, and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about and with the change making women of Princeton University. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and I'm talking today with Patricia Falcone, class of 74. Pat was one of the very first women to get an engineering degree from Princeton. She's now deputy director of science and technology for the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory near Berkeley, California. And if you're unfamiliar with Livermore, it's one of the nation's very top research facilities. Uh, Critically, it's dedicated to ensuring the nuclear deterrent is both safe and reliable and it has a much broader mission too, and I'm sure Pat will tell us more about that as we go on. Uh, Pat has also served as a top White House policy advisor. She worked for six years in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. She was associate director for three of those years. And Pat, with that incredible resume behind you, what insights can you give us as to why women shy away or, 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 or why they don't have as many opportunities as men in science and technology?
1: Well, the literature on this, I think you can bend into three areas. You know, one is about education and preparation. Uh, one is about image. And uh, one is about barriers, explicit barriers and implicit barriers. I think um, there are issues in, in all three of those areas. Uh, with respect to education, at least historically, um, you know, many women uh, and many uh, very— um, you know academically inclined women have uh, given up on taking math and you need a lot of mathematics uh, to be able to do these fields so if you uh, don't uh, do the training uh, then you know it's difficult to advance so we have to encourage uh, everyone uh, and you know there's lots of efforts to do computer science earlier but i mean i think it's also cultural we don't let people get away with not um knowing how to read, we shouldn't let even educated people get away with, you know, not taking math, a lot of math, uh, even if you're not going to be a scientist. Uh, with respect to image, um, you know, that's complex culturally. I, we're seeing more women on TV shows and in books, and it, it does help. I. At Princeton, it's such a great honor that the first undergraduate uh, to get a Nobel Prize is uh, Frances Arnold, and so I just think that's so exciting. I had the privilege of meeting her when I was at the White House, and she was awarded the uh, National Medal of um, Technology and Innovation. I and got to meet her and her family, and I was found her so inspiring. And so, you know, I think image, uh, we just need to hold up uh, these great people, And uh, then barriers, you know, we've worked a lot, I think, on, well, letting women be hired if their husband uh, is also a professor. You know, there's a lot of rules that existed, you know, even before my time back in the 50s. But, you know, there have been barriers and, uh, you know, a lot of attention now on implicit um, bias uh, about just how we run processes uh, to make them fair. You
0: also, uh, I think, had a pretty good experience here at, at Princeton as an undergraduate, and some people that were helpful to you. I wonder if you can talk mm-hmm. about the importance of mentorship.
1: Well, I think, um, you know, being here in those very early days uh, was uh, weird in lots of ways, uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, now looking back, I think we all feel proud, but yes, I uh, came to Princeton from Texas, and I was encouraged to apply by an alum uh, who just um, had been opposed to coeducation. He did a lot of recruiting in South Texas and had for many years. And I've heard some other women on um, talk about this too—the importance of alumni. Uh, recruiting and seeking people out. But he was another one that thought, um, well, he was very post co But if we had to have women at Princeton, he wanted some Texas women there. <laughs> so he went uh, that year and, you know, reached out to me. He talked to the guidance counselors at my school. So I didn't know anything about Princeton and uh, would never have applied if he hadn't continued to sort of harangue me. I remember filling out the application on my birthday, which is December 28th and it was due the 1st of January, and I mean, I really was doing it because he just kept calling. Um, That's
0: funny. That's really amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: think, you know, the alumni make a big difference, Mm -hmm. or people like Ted McAllister, class of 52. That was your recruiter? Uh Uh-huh. And then when I I came to uh, Princeton, um, you know, the engineering school, well, it just was odd, but I will say that once folks reached out and encouraged me to reach out to faculty members, and and the very first faculty advisor I had in the chemical engineering department said I needed to change my attitude and realize that the professors were here working for me, um, and that I, you know, should be reaching out more, and I thought that was a pretty amazing thing for this senior person to say, well, you know, the faculty works for you. But I was uh, greatly... Privileged to have someone say that the person I should go talk to about engineering was uh, Professor Irvman, Irvin Glassman. And I did a call, cold call him and uh, went to talk to him. I was really interested in chemistry, but at that point I wasn't so sure about doing um, chemical engineering. Uh, he was a chemical engineer, is a chemical engineer, and, um, in, and uh, led a large effort in combustion inside the then called the Aerospace Mechanical Sciences Department. And I said, well, gosh, you know, but the engineering curriculum looks like you don't get to take any other classes and everybody else is taking all these really interesting classes. And he said to me, well, go away and think about what you want to take and come back and talk to me about that. And so it was really a great freeing thing. And um, I came back and, you know, and I transferred over to the, uh, or, you know, changed my intent. I hadn't declared, of course, quite yet. I was in, and um, I took English classes one every semester, which was one of the things that I didn't want to miss out on. And and then as I got into the department, um, I had him as a professor, I had him as a research supervisor, but then there were other faculty in the department which just were terrific. And so, you know, there are many weird stories, but um, the nurturing and a commitment to teaching and education that I found among the faculty in that department were pretty amazing.
0: I want to come back to one weird story that you told mm-hmm. in a second, but I, 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 I'm inclined to ask, Have you, there were no women engineering faculty members
1: at that time? No, it's really funny. I never heard a woman um, talk give a technical talk until I was in graduate school. Oh my! And I remember sitting there, it was somebody who was, um, you know, I think applying for a faculty job so I was a graduate student and uh, we would all be invited or you know we pretty much knew uh, in the seminar series that these were and it was a woman and um, and I remember who it was but anyway uh, and I sat there listening and everything sounded strange to me. I thought it was so weird to hear technical concepts in a Female voice, and I thought, well, this is why everybody thinks it's so weird that I'm in class because <laughs> it just sounds different. That's interesting. It's almost like hearing your own voice on a recording, yeah,
0: yeah coming back at you.
1: So, right, uh, there was absolutely no one at Princeton, but uh, at Stanford um, and in graduate school. And have you taken
0: have you taken on that role yourself with young women coming up the uh, the ropes?
1: Well, I did actually even a lot as an undergraduate. Um, I the engineer, when Bob John was the dean of uh, engineering, he often had me, uh, you know, be on panels, and we were trying to reach out more and and let incoming women uh, at Princeton know there were women in, in the engineering school. And yes, I think I've always uh, tried. Um, I have been interested in always making a network wherever I was, and so I'm always try to be a part of that.
0: I want to. Uh ask you about some of the weird events, or at least one of the uh, weird events. Do you have any stories you'd like to share with us? Any memories?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, I, I think it's been widely <laughs> recorded that many of us were asked um, on campus, uh, were we girls or were we co-eds, that there was a real distinction at the beginning. Tell us what that distinction and was. And so co-eds were uh, the women that were part of Princeton's co-education, and girls were the girls you dated, and in general, there was still a tradition early on of um, parties, and women came from, you know, women's universities or from other places. So girls apparently were the people you dated, and coeds were like weird women that you were, <laughs> you saw during the week. Um, but you know, I mean, I think in all these cases, when people know each other as people, not as some group, it all works out. I mean, uh, people are, are uh, generally. Generous to other people. I mean, it's a personal thing, but it is true. When I went to the uh, freshman week uh, engineering reception, or um, you know, uh, first meeting, and I there was it was in a big room in the E Quad, and when I got to the door, the entire room burst into applause and uh, started clapping, going, "A girl, a girl." And uh, the best thing about that, or I mean, there were many bad things about it just because it made me feel quite odd, but at my 25th reunion, I talked to a classmate who said to me, we were just chatting, and he said, you know, I remember that, Pat, and that was really weird. (laughs) He (laughs) says, I have no idea why we did that. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, it's come full circle that here at my 25th reunion, you know, one of the guys that I didn't know then... You know, we're sort of here as people, so I'm not the weird one. Yeah, and
0: as you look around the campus today, I mean, we're now heading towards not too terribly far off, 50th reunion. Um, How far have we come, do you think, in that regard?
1: Well, we've come quite far. Of course, Emily Carter is the dean of the engineering school, which is terrific, Um, and she's the second woman dean. Um, I think the numbers of undergraduates are um, maybe not up to date, but I think 40%. I think at the graduate level, it's still uh, less, uh, 25% maybe, but I I don't know. But I think those are are good national numbers. But, you know, at Livermore, um, we in our science and technology staff were just a little under 20% women. So that's better than when I was— here as an undergraduate, yeah, uh, and so nothing has ever been as weird in my career as as it was to be here as an <laughs> undergraduate Glad engineer. To hear that. <laughs> uh, but um, the numbers are still not good, and it's not uncommon that I find myself still the only woman, and I don't understand that because. I have had uh, the privilege of working on so many really fun things. So the work is super fun. So I think fundamentally that's the important thing. Um, people shouldn't do what they don't want to do, but I think um, in the case of data science, um, the burgeoning questions that we're asking about the world that, that uh, doing engineering and doing Princeton engineering, it's just the most fun thing. I would love to drill on that a little bit if I can. Tell me the most fun project you worked on. Well, as an undergraduate, I think it was the opportunity to do student research. So, um, and I I think there's, and so I would, uh, any uh, students that are listening, I would say do that for sure, because the opportunity, I was in a class and um, they asked for volunteers to work on a project. I ended up we worked on—another student and I worked on a new device that measured air pollutants uh, that were part of photochemical smog. The This was after the Clean Air Act had been passed, and that regulated a number of pollutant types. But this, uh, these, this machine, this instrument measured the oxides of nitrogen, so it had been developed at a small company near Princeton, and they needed some non-PhD people to just try it out, and so— you know, the uh, faculty had been involved, and so they just offered it as a student project. And so it was just terrific. Um, we, and so the idea was just use the machine. So we went out and took bag samples of pollutants. We did it at times of day. We got the traffic measurements. We correlated the air pollution with the uh, time of day. We went even to the Lincoln Tunnel actually so we did this in this class and then we did actually a semester of uh, research that would have been spring semester my sophomore year and did more measurements at the Lincoln Tunnel and more elaborate um, correlations you know with things we thought was causing and so that was so motivating because you had to pull everything together and so I was really energized for that junior year and uh, so I think research experiences are the best and uh, Princeton size and and its commitment to students um, allows that. And we know also from research that uh, research experiences are an indicator um, for retention, for particularly for women and underrepresented uh, minorities. So they're a best practice uh, for diversity.
0: Why is that? I'm curious.
1: I think it's because it makes it all real and because you're dealing, you know, you're really focused on the problem. The problem sometimes is... Uh, large technical classes that uh, students take early in their um, academic uh, time, you know, just feel like huge hurdles. Mm -hmm. And you don't get the sense of the problem solving. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you're attracted to problem solving, which is what is really about engineering. That's what people told me engineering was, and I still believe it to be true. It's kind of if you like math and science, but you actually want to do something with it, then being an engineer is great. And so a research problem really allows you to get to that. Of yeah. how do we, And also, I think it's the multi-dimensionality is interesting, is how do you take all, you know, knowing something about all these things and answering an important question. And I think that's what I still find fun about my job.
0: You've said to me previously that scientists and engineers may not always be as articulate as, as desirable in the policy arena. I wonder if you could expand on that, because I, I, I mm-hmm. not to boost Princeton too much, <laughs> but I do think that having that English class that you mm-hmm. talked about does help
1: communicate science as well as do science. And
0: I'm, I'm again, I'm curious what your thoughts might be.
1: Well, I think that's true. I know that um, the time in Washington, I learned more about how policy papers for very high-level dis- decisions were prepared. And, and I think it became more obvious to me how tribal things are. And so I think scientists and engineers have a way of talking to each other um, through view graphs, through um, dense, uh, dis- deep discussion that is not really commensurate, uh, with a policy discussion with folks who are expert in the law or um, other issues. So it was fun to learn to be a translator uh, And because in Washington it's really, um, you know, I uh, worked um, with the members of the National Security Council, and so what the coin of the realm of a policy paper, you know, to support a senior a deputies meeting or whatever is not the way we talk to each other as scientists. So uh, being clear, thinking clearly, um, bringing facts to decisions, and uh, focusing on that is important. And I do think uh, what I learned at Princeton was um, how to be uh, what what constitutes the best, even if you can't achieve it. And I think... um, the importance of clarity in thinking and communicating.
0: It's hard to think of a better way to close.
1: Thank you very much, Patricia
0: Falcone, for joining us. And thanks to our audio engineer, Dan Kearns, our editor, Nicholas Barberio, and our producer, Danielle Alio. Thanks also to the audience for listening. We'll be back again soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women of Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications, with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.